Welcome to the Share Chair Podcast, where we tell each other stories and learn from listening. Well, hello, welcome to the Share Chair Podcast. I'm Greg Kovalat, coming from Fruitport High School, and today we have a really wonderful guest I'm super excited to have, Mr. Ken Ernie. Uh, you guys might know Mr. Ernie from uh, his time at Fruitport as athletic director or soccer coach and recently retired. And so, uh, Ken, how you doing? Welcome to the Share Chair Podcast. Thanks. This is interesting, and I hope it's helpful. Uh, I am... Uh, I'm always impressed with your nuggets of wisdom you find to share, and I imagine that today there'll be some of that. Not to set the bar too high, but uh, there'll be nuggets to share. So, so Ken, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. I'm especially interested in how you came to Fruitport, because sure. you're not from Fruitport, right? Not meant to bore anybody. I'm from southern New Jersey, a town called Burlington, which is not too far from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, Grew up, obviously, in the 50s and 60s out there and um, kind of a nuclear family, a typical um, mom and dad and brother and sister family. Um, very grateful for parents that were uh, supportive and through so many things. Um, went to college in Ohio, decided, thanks to the influence of a coach, to uh, major in history and in education. So uh, started looking for jobs. Uh, upon graduating and then one place that I didn't want to go was Michigan because <laughs> when I was there playing tennis at college the weather was so horrendous I thought it was always tornadoes or blizzards or something and so I said I would never go to Michigan but turns out that there were some uh, South Jersey implants that actually lived in Fruitport and encouraged me to come out and see the Christian school uh, had a job for my wife the following year that I would be there and so I started at Faith Christian School, which is a church, was a church school right across the street from the high school, was there for nine years, um, able to start a soccer program there when I got there, and it was new to everybody, and it was well-received, and within a couple of years, we were playing at a pretty good level of soccer, even though it was a school of only 80 kids. So um, started some good relationships with Fruitport people. Uh, doing some teaching tennis and then eventually teaching some soccer, starting a soccer club with some community people here and just had good relationships with uh, gym rentals and field rentals and uh, summer programs. And when the opportunity came um, in 1989 and 90, uh, I was ready and it worked out and started with community ed and then eventually moved to the high school and uh, when the AD job opened. Well, good. Well, I want to come back and talk more about your career in it, you know, as an athletic administrator there. Uh, but how about your family? So you, you came and you said something about uh, having your wife. I know her, Lori, right? And then you had kids and your kids are fantastic. So any, anything you want to mention about your family? And <laughs> well, as we're talking about. Yeah, I wish, I wish I could relay how important they are to me, especially now. But um, all of them were supportive. My wife, extremely patient with uh, long hours of being an administrator and, and coaching too. Coaching alone is on wives, as you know, uh, is tough and on families. But I think that uh, our kids kind of grew up close to the schools and kind of gym rats in a sense and soccer managers and, you know, youth soccer. Everybody uh, in our circles tends to want to coach little kids when their kids are little. So we went through that. But Extreme amount of patience on behalf of our uh, family members, for sure. 
Ken, not uh, all our listeners will know your history, but you've kind of referenced things. So there's kind of besides being athletic director at Fruport for over 20 years, it sounds like. Uh, but you were also uh, the uh, soccer coach. Uh, did you just coach on the men's side, I believe? Yes. The boys' soccer yeah. coach. And so talk to us a little bit about uh, coaching soccer and what you love about it and, and why you did it for so long. Well, I guess um, go back to the 1970s when I came to Faith Christian. It was new to so many people. Um, and yet it was so well accepted. It was like, this guy must know what he's talking about. Whether I did or didn't, it didn't matter. Uh, but it was a it was a sport that just seemed right. Um, and I got to say that in the late 70s, it was like one school in the Muskegon area that had soccer, and that was West Michigan Christian. And they were in a league with schools from Holland and Grand Rapids. But uh, when Faith Christian was starting, it was just right because it was almost the time that Grand Haven and West Ottawa and Forest Hills were starting. We were actually in a league with them for a year or two and could compete with them, a school of 80 students, because it was new to everybody. It was new to the whole community. And again, except for Western Michigan Christian, who could handle all of those schools as they were starting, um, no problem. But um, those were the early days of coaching. And again, it was it was before there was any clubs, travel teams were non-existent, that type of thing. There are some people in, in Fruport that got very excited about the possibilities. Uh, Tom Kennard is a guy that was one of them, and, and then several others, and they helped start the Fruitport Soccer Club, and um, that stimulated a lot of growth and development. 1990 is when we had our first uh, boys program at the varsity level. And I want to say it was about two to three years later the girls started. Gotcha. So, so you did it for a long time, and so you, did you coach soccer at Faith Christian for five, six, nine uh, years, something was, like that? I want to say it was eight or nine years. Eight or nine, and then so. you coached at Fruitport for like 19 years, yeah. if I remember yeah. right. And so you did it for a long time. So what what, what brought you joy about it? Why did you <laughs> like to do it? Uh, um, generally speaking, it's the people involved. I mean, it's the students as well as supportive parents. But um, I don't know. First of all, the years went by so darn fast. It's, it's, it's almost you never have time to sit back and say, uh, boy, this is dragging along because it didn't. It was it was speeding along, but it's motivational to see things improve, to see you start something. It's motivational to see some success um, and to deal with struggle. And so it's just I always wanted to think of myself as an educator, a teacher. And so um, it was always associated with teaching. And so up in the faith Christian times, I was always a classroom teacher. And so relationships with kids and how they love soccer. It's just kind of like it spurns each other on. It just um, it motivates you to keep going. Well, I think uh, you uh, hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think because uh, it's about relationships, right? right. And uh, you knowing the players that played for you, uh, I can see that you were very effective in building quality relationships with them and teaching them to love soccer and love competing and uh, you know all the lessons that come with, uh, with sports there. So now then you so you athletic director and coach for a while. You're doing both at the same time. You finish as athletic director, and my impression is that athletic directors lose that relationship piece because it's so much paperwork, uh, decision making. Is the rain going to stay? Do we have to reschedule a you know softball match or something like that? 
but you found some ways to still stay involved in relationship with kids. Uh, I'm thinking about the, the SALT program that you started. Uh, you want to talk how you found a way to still have relationships even though you were like a full-time administrator? It may uh, turn out in retrospect to have been very selfish, but I was so geeked for 29 years of having a team that you could connect with on a regular basis, at least during the season that um, you could also get swamped with administrivia, as somebody once called it, important, but not, not relational. So um, it was within a couple months, maybe, or maybe one school year that I really felt compelled to start a, um, a volunteer group of student athletes who wanted to learn more and learn more about how they can maybe increase their performance or be a better leader, better, better athlete as well, better student in the hallways. And I've been following at times, going to AD conferences, following what other schools were doing. And I thought this is really needed and not that many are doing it, but I like what they're doing. So we called it a student athlete leadership team. And that started shortly after I stopped coaching, maybe around 2009 or, or so. And um, it was a, Every other week group, we would meet for breakfast one one or two years, and we would meet for lunches uh, where they could get off and get a couple minutes free. And uh, we would just go through stuff. Sometimes it was books that I re was reading or um, things that were events that were happening that we would um, try to stay tuned with, and a lot of emphasis on sportsmanship, leadership, um, personal growth and development. And the cool thing was, other than the food maybe was motivational, but they're all volunteers and it grew every year. And, and um, one time there was an athlete who said, Hey, can I invite my friend? He's not, he's not an athlete, but he's in band. Would that be okay? I thought, Why in the world not? So it doesn't matter what the name is, but so we, we didn't have 100% um, athletes. There are occasionally some others. And I thought that was an honor to do that. The other thing too, is we just didn't force it. I mean, it wasn't like, in order to be a captain, you have to do this, or all captains have to attend this. It was totally, look at there's no grades. We want to get better. We're not here for a reform school. We just want you to grow. And at times there was some really good success. And I, I thought that that was so motivational to me. That's why I said I was almost selfish because I needed um, a group of people and, and we all need that. Well, I'm glad that you got to uh, stay connected with students on an intimate level. I know, uh, as well, maybe our listeners don't know, but uh, you were a longtime soccer coach at Fruitport High School. I was fortunate to be soccer coach after you at Fruitport High School for nine years. And uh, watching you latch on to some of the soccer players that were you know, playing for the school and playing for the team I was coaching, uh, it was really great to see you connect with them. And to keep that, and uh, I know that made a positive difference on the, the athletes and the teams that I got to coach. So, so thanks for doing that. Yeah, thank you. I'm so. smiling under my mask. Yeah, yeah, I am too. I am too. <laughs> so, um, and so we've talked about uh, your history and your uh, career as a soccer coach, but I want to talk a little bit more about your career as athletic director, as an administrator. So, what were the good parts of that, or uh, maybe some uh, challenges that? Uh, you remember as a career of athletic director? Well, obviously, like modern challenges are probably unmatched with COVID, and I really didn't have but one semester to deal with that the last spring. Um, 
the, the challenges are, are always present. Um, I guess one of the, the simplest ones to say is that no matter how you plan your day, at least this is my experience, um, there's always something that takes the place of your, you know, one, two or three on your list uh, because it's ever changing. So it might be student issues or league issues or um, something that happened the night before or else you have to plan something different. So uh, one thing I learned is that your to-do list probably never gets done. Now, maybe a different personality type would be different, but that could be frustrating and you can't let it get to you that um, I think the bottom line is uh, people are more important than things and they'll always take the priority. And so if it's a people issue, you have to learn to put those other things aside, even though the tension is, is that everything is time continuing in the job. Um, you know, you have to get something done by this amount of time or the game is at six and it has to be uh, problem solved, whatever's going on, that type of thing. Uh, there's a lot of other challenges that I've experienced. Uh, a lot of times they involve um, coaching or coaches, um, but you get to enjoy them, you get to embrace them and lean into them. And I think if that's, if that's where your starting point is, it, it, it all seems to work. Great. So how many years were you athletic director at Freeport High School? Uh, I am thinking it was about 26. I came in mid-semester in the 95-96 Over 25 year. years. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, is what, uh, what things from before you were an athletic director do you think prepared you to be a successful athletic director? And well, maybe it doesn't have to be athletic directing specific, but what did you do prior to that that just made you a successful career person? Well, I have to uh, put a shout out to um, college days of what we would call liberal arts college. And I just think there's so many of the disciplines that you encounter, even though you're in the sports world or the education world. There are so many times you need to know legal and history and uh, medical and all those type of things. And I, I do look back and, and I remember wondering, is it worth it to have an education when at that time I didn't even know what I was going to do? Oh, well, um, let me interrupt you because yeah. I'm also someone that went to a liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. And this is not like a political kind of liberal no. thing. <laughs> a liberal arts college for our listeners. I know it's like to me as someone that uh, respects and values the well-rounded student. And so I had to take a class in like every department. I had to take a mm -hmm. music class and an art class and a philosophy class, even though I was a natural science majors in biology and chemistry. And so you're saying that that education stuff helped you, huh? That you that you're a well-rounded person, so you were prepared to be successful in a variety of different things. Is well, that kind of what I'm hearing? Sooner or later, you come across uh, knowledge that you didn't have, but you use as a foundation some of the stuff you learned that you didn't think you'd ever use. And um, you know, athletic director is a variety of things. I gotta say too that that coaching uh, coaches I had in school or in college. Um, and then being able to coach myself, I don't know what kind of an athletic director I would have been if I had no coaching experience, for instance, because you, it seems like you must know what coaches go through in order to be a leader of coaches. And um, 29 years of coaching and learning along the way was really, really helpful. That might have been the number one thing that, that helped me be an administrator that's, um, that's been there. So I love it, the, the kind of a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. I love it. So, uh, so Ken, you had a, a wonderful career, and part of that came with some honors and some awards and some recognitions. And, and I know that uh, 
you know, you don't like to, you know, make yourself the focal point, but I want to brag you up a little bit, right? Uh, you are inducted to the Michigan High School Soccer Coaches Hall of Fame uh, after a great career as a soccer coach. Recently, we had the soccer field at Fruitport High School uh, named in honor of you. It's now Ken Ernie Field. Uh, based on your career in soccer and career in, in all of athletics at Fruitport. So how do those kind of things make you feel? <laughs> um, I, I guess uh, one of them is like it's over the top is the feeling that kept coming over me when it came to the field naming and stuff. This is a very difficult thing to do. You just don't easily name a field. So with that, I say I, it, it's a humbling honor and um yeah, it makes you feel like, I wonder if this makes sense. I wonder if this is the right thing to do, but I appreciate all the people that were behind it. And it, it does mean a lot. I mean, it, it makes you feel awesome. It makes you think back on, you know, 29 seasons of coaching at two different schools and and just how, um, how much fun it was, how enjoyable it was and how impacting it was. And it went both ways. What do you mean both ways? In other words, I was greatly impacted let's say like in the field celebration or any time that I connect with uh, former students, players from years back, they already started families in their professional lives. I mean, that has an impact when they come up to you and connect with you and say thank you or whatever, but it, it just goes both ways because um, sometimes students don't know how much they've impacted you. And so um, that's where the honor comes from is like, those people are my trophies. Those people are the real memories. And, and so what I guess what I'm trying to express is that there's a lot of mutual benefits when you're serving. And I hope to think I was in the service industry in that. Well, I think you kind of kind of answered my next planned question where I was going to ask, like, where does uh, where do these awards kind of rank on you on your priority list? Like, it's nice you have a, a plaque from the Hall of Fame, right? Or there's a banner that says that uh, the field's named after you. But uh, you seem to be really focused on uh, relationships, relationships with others, relationships with your student athletes. And uh, and that those relationships sound just as meaningful to you as, as these other, you know, kind of like uh, headline kind of things that would be in a, in a newsletter or a newspaper or something like that. Is, is that fair to say? Well, it is. I mean, it's easy to, to say that, you know, most people forget history and it's it's the relationships that will will go on. And that's the things that last. So you, I really, really believe that's true. Um, in a sense, the people are the trophies and it sounds a little bit redundant or easy to say, but it, it's true because that's what counts and people are more important than things. And if that's your, your deep core value, then uh, trophies are nice, uh, honors are nice, but they only go so far and most of the time they're forgotten. I think that's a great way to approach things for any young coach out there or professional. Like, you don't set your mindset, I'm going to be a Hall of Fame kind of uh, career, right? You just set your mindset on uh, working with the people around you, right? And if your philosophy of the coach is to help students, help athletes get from here to there, then you just do that. And if you, you do it well, well, maybe you'll get some, some benefits or some hugs from, from former students yeah. or athletes yeah. later or something even more uh, glittery like, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, a ceremony. So, 
Well, great. Well, Ken, so, so the field was named after you and uh, just shortly after you retired. And I don't think we, uh, we can avoid talking about that. Uh, you retired partly because of a health condition, right? Uh, maybe you were getting close to retirement age, but I could see you have gone on trucking and trucking more. But um, uh, those of us that love you, have, you know, we're, we're saddened to hear about your, uh, your diagnosis with ALS. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about how that came into your life in, in just a short amount of time? Well, uh, during the COVID shutdown this spring, um, it was obviously something wrong that maybe a weakness in my leg that I noticed and my wife noticed. And, and yet um, it wasn't until the shutdown till you really think that something maybe is, is going wrong. But there was no availability for testing um, for quite a while when things were closed. And all you could do is look on the Internet at what it might be. And uh, at first I thought that the symptoms seemed to check all the boxes with ALS, but then there's this one thing about ALS and that is that it's a rare disease. And so I thought, well, let's not jump to conclusions. Rare means rare and one in 20,000 means look somewhere else. It must be a back problem or something difficult uh, that's different. Uh, so uh, there was a, a time when some local testing was able to take place and there was a misdiagnosis that I didn't have ALS and then it wasn't until July 1st or or that week when um, a specialist in Grand Rapids identified that it's obviously ALS. And um, at first I thought I could still keep working and maybe go a couple more years. And after this, uh, I was thinking maybe I can go a couple more months. And then the best decision was, if this is a wrong decision, you'd really regret it. So it's time to stop now. So um, the last day of August was my last day of work. and. Um, in the meantime, you know, learning and living and trying to make the best out of every day and also uh, counting my blessings that I do have. Are, are you willing to share uh, to people who aren't familiar, like, like what is ALS? What, what, how does it affect your body? Yeah, um, I learned a lot in the last few months and there's lots more to learn. It's, um, it's, I was told on day one that it's a, uh, uh, a fatal disease, it's progressive and there's no cure. <laughs> Those are the three things that I remember resonating on that July 1st. Um, it is something that affects the muscles and the nerve neurons in your body, and eventually the cells die, and which um, the uh, muscles that are um, attacked or are affected, they can start anywhere. And mine, it started in my legs, but uh, tests show that throughout my body, the nerve neurons as well as the muscles are, have damage. Um, I uh, fit under the 90% of ALS cases that are called sporadic, or we don't know. No one knows why it started. 10% are uh, people that have it genetically, a, a gene that has been passed down. So I am in that sporadic part, and uh, lifespan is hard to, to figure. Average is two to uh, five years, um, and yet uh, I really still think I get to look back on the things I've always coached and taught and say that attitude is everything. So um, I, I want to try to have an attitude that if these things happen rather than when they happen, um, but yet I do feel the weakness and it's happening. And um, so there's lots to learn. Like I said, there's, there's um, uh, groups that are support groups for ALS. They're, I'm learning that ALS patients are all over the place. They're just uh, I just never heard of it, but there's a whole community of people that are hurting in different stages. 
Uh, there's a little bit of movement now happening towards um, legislation to put more money into uh, discovering what this is and, and uh, perhaps finding a cure someday. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of unknowns. And I guess if, if that's what God wants, that I'm one in 20,000, uh, here we go. So you said that only 10% are genetic cases. So, so am I reading this right, that that's good news, that uh, your four kids are probably not genetically connected? Is that, is that true? That's extremely good news uh, as far as what science tells us. I imagine uh, that's a huge relief on you because, yeah. I mean, I know, I know how much you love your family, right? So. And I've come across some people who I've spoken with one-on-one um, -on -one with, uh, they are in part of that 10% where they know that they are inevitably going to get ALS or they know their children are prone to it. And it's, it's a great fear that they have when they have young kids. And um, that's a whole other component to this, the emotional part of it. And combined with the unknown. And um, yeah, I, I, I want to say that there's a fortunate story to say that, okay, it's not genetic. Yeah. It's something that uh, affects the muscles. And uh, to paint the picture, if I understand right, I mean, so much of how the human body functions is muscles. It's right. not just your legs and being able to walk. I mean, you, I see you have a little kind of a brace on today, uh, but uh, muscles are used for speaking, correct? Uh, muscles this, are used yeah. for, for eating and swallowing. Is that, am I understanding it right? I mean, yeah, unfortunately, as the disease progresses, um, um, no one knows exactly how fast, but it, uh, your voluntary muscles, um, it does affect movement, um, arms, legs, and eventually the ability to, uh, to breathe uh, at the end of life, uh, your ability to swallow, your ability to chew and uh, eat. Um, those are the, the more morbid, you know, thoughts of how ALS usually progresses um, within a few years with, with patients. Yeah. And, and so at some point, uh, you're going to be in a wheelchair. And, uh, and, and so I want to bring this up because uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about how your family and the bigger community around you has been uh, so supportive. I know that there's uh, some people helping out with uh, designing a, a home for you that would be a wheelchair accessible kind of home to make things easy on you and, and you know, and family members and caregivers. So uh, you want to talk about that at all, about the, the community uh, uh, aspect of, uh, you know, of going through something like this? I mean, this will apply for ALS with you, but listeners could probably apply to someone who's going through a cancer, right? Or someone who's recovering from a, some kind of a heart surgery or something like that. Uh, yeah. Well, there are so many backstories. I, I mean, I, I can't just pick one and I can't go on and on with every one. But um, my belief is that God has been involved in this in a really uh, tremendous way. So... With that, um, so many people have stepped up, and I'll start with just saying my family, right from day one, the day of the diagnosis, um, they gathered around outside the hospital in a park, and we prayed together, we yelled, we screamed, we, we just sat quietly. Um, but that was day one in this, in this journey because there was so much support for them, and they started uh, in so many ways of 
even revamping their own schedules and their own lives and their own priorities uh, to to show uh, love and, and concern and uh, it's just so many areas that they've been helped with already and including family members that are um, chipping in to help us be able to uh, buy a lot and build this accessible home starting in the spring. Uh, community people, old soccer folks and families, uh, thanks to uh, my youngest, Jessica, started a, a ALS walk, virtual walk, but we did it at the park this, this fall and so many people contributed in so many ways. So you talk about rewards or honors. I mean, those are the type of things that uh, at least I would never forget. And um, the community, the outreach, the school district, our family has just been like um, so gracious. I just feel like I got to say I get to experience these things and it's been a blessing. And again, there's more backstories, but that's that's the summary. Well, I'm seeing a reoccurring thing of relationships, right? Yeah. Your career as a coach and athletic director and now relationships in a, in a different way. But but some of them are the same. I, I remember talking to your wife, Lori, that old uh, old parents of uh, soccer teammates, right? Your kids played mm -hmm. soccer and uh, the parents became friends because the kids were on the same team. And, and some of those relationships have been really supportive and beneficial for for not just you, but for her too, right? Because uh, yeah, it's the, the whole, this is going to affect you know everybody around you. Amazing, and Lori, as a future caregiver and current caregiver, in a way, is uh, definitely affected, and that's a whole another story and challenge in itself. But the people from the past, so to speak, parents of, of players, and again, that's what makes sports so good. When it's when it's a positive experience, it's not just our team or Fruitport, but it's like these people are, are never going to leave you in a sense. And they give you that relationship that lasts for a while. And, and that's one of the greatest aspects of sports and competition and teams and extracurricular stuff. Can I think another thing about the relationships and community that transition is that uh, uh, there was like this, uh, like almost like a, you know, a fundraiser, I guess, right. Where people were selling shirts, kind of celebrating the night. The field was named after you. And I, it's one of my favorite shirts to wear around now, but I love the quote on the back, right. That it says, uh, my life is not my own. Do I have that quote, right? My life is yes. not my own. And, that, and this is a quote that, uh, that you said, you didn't steal it from some great philosopher. Maybe someone else has said it before, of course, but, uh, can you tell us a little bit why why that quote is is a, is a great story that relates to you and your life? Well, um, it relates to the day that we found our diagnosis and we were sitting in that park with with our, our family and our, our uh, loved ones. And I know I didn't speak much, but those words came out of my mouth, um, which were intended to say, we really um, don't have control of, of our lives in this world. And, and yet I wanted to give the confidence to my family and loved ones that, that God is in control. And it's not, it's not something that um, we can master or maneuver. And it was just meant to be that. And, and again, I, I vaguely remember saying, and I didn't speak much that day because it was really difficult but it was meant to say that, you know, we are not in control. And I thoroughly believe that God knows what he's doing. 
imagine that, well, we have a similar philosophy, right? That our time on planet Earth, right, is not, uh, is not the whole story. And uh, that can uh, help you live life to the fullest, but, but keep it in perspective, too. So great. Well, Ken, is, um, I, want, I want to ask us the same question we had all of the podcasts with. Are, are there what advice to share? But before that, was there anything that, that you wanted to talk about or hoping that we were going to chat about that we got, didn't get to? Or you can just you can say no, but I like to uh, I don't want to close the door if there's yeah, something I, I more guess, you want to say. I guess the only thing is, as I know we talked about earlier, is that sometimes people don't know what to say to you. Um, like, how are you feeling, or how do you like retirement? Okay. Those are the two common so questions. So let me, let, me, let me preface this. So you're talking about someone's going through a, a tough time or a medical condition mm-hmm. or something like that, and people want to, you know, connect and say hello, and they're not sure what to say. Maybe you're not sure what to say, too. So this, this is the kind of situation you're talking about? Sure, and yeah. I've experienced that, and I've done it many times. I know people, you know, and you sense when they feel uncomfortable, and the only thing I would suggest is, you know, just do what – you would do like sometimes someone would say um how are you as opposed to how are you feeling because it's more depth and maybe you know you can express that and sometimes you get this idea that maybe you don't want to go through the diatribe and, and tell somebody how you really feel or whatever um i i don't really still don't know what to say when somebody says how are you enjoying retirement because this wasn't the perfect example of retirement um, so all I could say is like, the important thing is you can tell when somebody really wants to just say, I care about you. And, and if you want to talk great, if not, there's a way of, of, um, uh, communicating and it's, I care about you and you know, that's genuine. So I, I wouldn't want people to, uh, to be afraid of what to say or to say something wrong. It's just come alongside, support them. And um, sometimes it's just to be quiet. Well, Ken, uh, that's some good advice, but I'm going to ask you if there's any more. So we ask, what advice do you have for our listeners? If you had a, a chance to share advice to listeners, a one-time shot, what advice would you give? Well, if I, I don't want to talk about myself, but I think that there's something I want to say, uh, if I can word it this way, that um, I, I believe that you know, pain and suffering are part of the human struggle. And struggle is inevitable. So if you're a 17 year old struggling with COVID shutdowns or wondering what the world's turning into, um, I kind of want to say, and it's easy to say, and it's easy for me to not do, but to lean into the struggle that, that struggle is real and that, um, attitude is everything. So, um, I would just say I need to do this Everyone needs to do this, regardless of whether you're a teenager or an old guy. Um, look at the controllables. We're not in control of a lot of things that's going on in our world now, but we can control things like our attitude, our response to what happens, um, our gratefulness or gratitude. Um, and yes, to the generations, people have had great struggles and whether they're world wars or other famines or uh, economic crises, people have gotten through. And I just wanted to somehow uh, express that our response to struggle is everything. So um, it's real. I know it's it's difficult. Discouragement is there. But remember what you are in control of. 
and how you respond will determine the outcome. You, you almost, you've explained it to me in the past as kind of a math formula from, yeah. a, from an old football coach. Uh, I don't know, can you quickly just say what that math That's formula exactly is? That's exactly it. It's E plus R equals O, and the E is an event. Name the event. It could be anything personal. It could be on the sports field. Something happens, bad call or injury or whatever. But E plus R equals O. The R is the big thing. It is the factor that determines the outcome. It's called the response. Our response might be uh, a negative response, and that will determine the outcome. Our response might be, okay, there's a bad call in the soccer field. Let's keep playing and, and, and go hard and not let it bother us. Our response determines the outcome. And sometimes our response should be to press pause. Just wait. Think about it. Use the brain God gave you. Um, but often we just are in a default mode where we overreact or respond with the wrong way. So that was something that stuck with me. And uh, I wish I knew it when I was growing up. E plus R equals O. It's, uh, it's uh, a great thing to remember that our response is everything. And we respond with the things that we're in control over. Uh, Ken, what a pleasure it is to, uh, to chat with you and see you and to have you share, uh, share your story and your wisdom with our listeners. Thanks so much for being part of the Share Share podcast. Thanks. I miss being a part of the educational environment, and hopefully it was a help. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Share Share podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode.